0: Not many days have passed since I wrote those words. No answer. But I must unroll my book again. It would be better to rewrite it from the beginning, but I think there's no time for that. Weakness comes on me fast, and Arnum shakes his head and tells me I must rest. They think I don't know that they have sent a message to Darren. Since I cannot mend the book, I must add to it. To leave it as it was would be to die perjured. I know so much more than I did about the woman who wrote it. What began the change was the very writing itself. Let no one lightly set about such a work. Memory, once waked, will play the tyrant. I found I must set down, for I was speaking as before judges and must not lie, passions and thoughts of my own, which I had clean forgotten. The past which I wrote down was not the past that I thought I had all these years been remembering. I did not, even when I had finished the book, see clearly many things that I see now. The change which the writing wrought in me, and of which I did not write, was only a beginning, only to prepare me for the God's surgery. They used my own pen to probe my wound. out last time, that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self.
1: All right, so welcome back again to the Inklings Variety Hour. We are finishing up Till We Have Faces today, um, which C.S. Lewis wrote quickly in collaboration with his wife Joy Davidman, publishing in 1956. But he'd really been developing it it for 35 years since his atheist undergraduate days. A reworking of the Cupid and Psyche myth from the point of view of one of Psyche's evil sisters, it had been written as an unfinished narrative poem. In these early versions, Oriole's anger at the gods is vindicated, and the gods are proven to be unjust. But Lewis's Christianity and success as a writer of prose ultimately changed both the genre of the poem and its outcome. After publication, Lewis considered it his finest novel, which I have to agree. This novel is notable for its interiority. Lewis explores the psychology of the Queen of Gloam from her childhood as an ugly princess until the loss of her favorite sister psyche, later lifting up the veil just a bit to allow us to see her fate in the age to come. Welcome back. This is Inkling's Variety Hour. This is our final episode until we have faces. Um, And we have with us noted author, speaker, and scholar Andrew Lazo, who's done a great deal of work on "Until We Have Faces." How are you doing, Andrew?
2: I'm doing great. Day after my birthday. Hello, happy uh, birthday. Thank you. And I'm actually taking a break from writing an article about Till We Have Faces to come and jump in with you all. And so it was a joy to be with you at the beginning of this book. And I'm so glad to be here for, yeah, gosh, four of the best chapters of anything that I've ever read. And then I was fortunate to attend the C.S. Lewis conference in Texas a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that I did was um, talk about the initial meeting and courtship and love life of Joy David Men and C.S. Lewis and how she was a co-author to Till We Have Faces. And so I did uh, trace out some of my original research. And fortunately, they filmed that. And so that's part of the curriculum for the other Inklings uh, course. And so I gave a lecture, which is part of the curriculum that I'll be studying for the course that I'm taking. (laughs) Uh, I like I like it when it works out like that.
1: That's awesome. That's very like you know um, coherent uh, yes. uh, you know, substitutionary love, which which folds yes. nicely into uh, sort of what we're what we've got going on with these exactly. uh, last four chapters. Exactly. Um, Let's dive in. Man, I don't know how to summarize these last four chapters, uh, and I, i've I've written some basic points. Um essentially, what I'd say is going on is she's sort of seeing the other side of all of these relationships that she's been involved in, you know, throughout her life that have meant a particular thing to her. She's kind of seen how she's been unjust in most of these relationships, um, whether it's Redival, um, who really annoyed her, or Bardia, um, who she thought she loved, or Unget even, right? Um, realizing that, oh, shoot, I'm Unget. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and, and then gradually, as she's realizing this about herself and being driven to uh, uh, suicide in, in the midst of odd dreams and visions that she's having. That might be a product of sen- senility of old age, but also our God sense, right? Slowly also taking part in Psyche's redemption, yeah, which is her redemption as well. There's so much here. I want to hear what you all are interested in discussing.
0: I, I think just beginning with the, the frame of what happens in book two is only possible because she was angry enough at the end of book one to write it down because she went on that pilgrimage. She got upset because the story was going wrong and then she wrote out her own story and in the act of writing, mm-hmm. that was what the gods used like the stroke of her own pen right was the that was what they used to probe her Um, and writing as an examine and for C.S. Lewis as an author how writing so clearly forced him and forces in in the book Psyche to deal with the truth of the matter um, in ways that are unexpected and very deep. I just so appreciate that. The image of the the huge hopeless pile of seeds, wheat, barley, poppy mm-hmm. rye, it and whatnot that she had to sort out in her dream, the way it overflowed into her sleep, and then she's constantly working through it. Um, it just feels both really beautiful and mythic uh, as an image and also just real of what our dreams send to us as we work through things in our less intense lives, perhaps.
2: Yeah. These four four chapters are four of my favorite chapters in all of literature. And after many years of puzzling and puzzling over these visions and what the heck is going on with all of this, I think I finally kind of have a handle on it, and it goes back to seeing what Lewis is doing in all of his works. Um, and in fact, I've got a paper that I'm working on right now about this, and it's a chapter in my book, on t- Ontoia Faces, I, My Universal Field Theory of C.S. Lewis is clarity and charity, mm-hmm. right? Claritas et caritas. So he wants us to see things clearly, whether it's medieval literature or words. And it's you find that everywhere. Once you see him trying to see things clearly, Lucy, all of a sudden, the lucid one who sees mm-hmm. everything, or as asin says to her i brought you here so that you may know me better there right it's about vision with lewis and he's constantly trying to help us clear the glass and then charity caritas shorthand for love and as i pointed out the last time we visited in the very first line i have no husband no child no hardly even a friend through whom they can hurt me that's a rejection of husband eros child sorgi friend philia and the god's love agape So what you see until we have faces is a nascent form of the four loves, Mm -hmm. which everybody misses. And so he writes out the four loves so that we can see what's going on. So Lewis's definition of love comes from the 1958 talks that became the book Four Loves. There's actually no audiobook for the actual book for loves. You just have these 1958 lectures that he recorded and you can get those in his own voice. There's an important definition there that's not in the final book. And he says, love is where we go out of ourselves towards the other. So that twofold move to go away from me and towards you is Lewis's definition of love which is part of why I emphasize at the end of last podcast that I am no answer is the summation of book one. Orwell figures out that she has been selfish. And in being so selfish, as you read so beautifully, Annika, she said, to leave my book thus would be to die perjured. And perjured is a lie in court she's been lying in book one, lying to herself and lying to everybody else and lying about love. And so what you have in book two is this denouement, this kind of revelation bit by bit that she has not loved anybody and she's only loved herself. Love, which is nine parts hate, right? So the opposite of love in Lewis's world is not hatred but selfishness. And the opposite of self is to go out of the self towards the other. So the opposite of self or pride. And remember pride is, according to mere Christianity, the great sin and it's the fountain of all other sins. So you've got this turn from self to others. And there's a mirror involved, which is which happens in Lewis all the time. Lewis wants Orwell to see herself clearly so that she can see love clearly and that's what's going on so all of these visions and all of these encounters are these kind of hammer blows on the four loves so immediately in in chapter one, she starts with Redival. The dude comes, the unit comes and says, oh, you know, Redival said when the fox came, you loved me little, and when the child, when the baby came, you loved me not at all. And Redival essentially accuses Orwal of not loving her with Storgy. Redival was jealous or, or Orwell was jealous of Redival because she had blonde hair. She didn't love Redival. She didn't give her the familial Storgy affection that she deserved. And one by one, Lewis shows how Orwell has failed all four of the loves. Mm. You mentioned Bardia, and that's true. He loved her with Philia. She loved him with secret Eros that she never confessed and betrayed Philia. Plus she spoiled the Eros between Bardia and Ansett. So she is screwing with Eros. She robs Eros, literally robs Eros from Psyche, right? Steals her husband Eros because remember he's the god, he's the son of Ungit. Yeah. And Ungit is Aphrodite and Aphrodite's son is Eros. So she literally spoils the Eros between Psyche and and so one by one, she, he, she begins to see clearly that she has in fact not been loving and been hateful and selfish and that love has surrounded her, that she never, you know, in her own jealousy and peevishness. Um, never admitted so so mm. that's i think kind of what's happening in uh in book two with the very last line once we get there that's where it all that's where the fairy tale comes true you got a tolkienian catastrophe happening right in the last yeah. lines so anyway yeah. not to rush ahead
1: yeah no that's beautiful yeah i mean i think you're absolutely right about the eucatastrophe um and i love also the williamsian Williamsian element mm-hmm. um, here too where she gets to a place where she where she realizes after the interview, um, as you were saying, with, with Redival, um or with Taryn, um, mm-hmm. right, and after the interview with uh with Ansett, these two people who knew these people mm-hmm. that she was close to in some way, one that she tended to be annoyed with and the other that she thought she loved and realized, um, you know, the extent of her own selfishness and the, the extent to which her loves were not real loves um, at all. After she decides to kill herself and, and the god tells her, no, no, you know, die before you die. She realizes that, oh, I'm morally ugly. No man will love you, though you gave your life for him, unless you have a pretty face. So, might it not be? The gods will not love you, however you try to pleasure them and whatever you suffer, unless you have that beauty of soul. In either race, for the love of men or the love of a god, the winners and losers are marked out from birth. We bring our ugliness and both kinds with us, and with it our destiny. How bitter this was. Every ill-favored woman will know. We have all had our dream of some other land, some other world world some other way of giving the prizes which would bring us in as the conquerors leave the smooth rounded limbs and the little pink and white faces and the hair like burnished gold far behind their day ended and ours come but how if it's not so at all how if we were made to be dregs and refuse everywhere in an every way right tying her lack of beauty explicitly to her lack of goodness and just kind of saying look there's no way for me to win here and some people just seem to be good as some people are simply beautiful, right? And there's nothing I can do about it. But what she ends up doing is helping Psyche, right? Is 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 laboring for Psyche in the midst of, you know, in the midst of her own wretchedness doing the 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 work that allows Psyche to be that sort of like beautiful paragon because she's not really in the end a separate person from Psyche, not totally separate in the way that we Think of people being separate, right? But her destiny and her personality is 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 bound up with with psyches, as it's bound you up shall with be all psyche
2: the people. Too. Yeah,
1: yeah. And and there's a element not only of eucatastrophe, but also of of substitutionary love, and that sort of way in which Lewis's life has been bound up with these other people that he's known is reflected in the writing of this book, in which this woman's life is also bound up with with psyche and with many many other people that she's both hurt um and also she finds out from the fox in the end you know been a blessing to even though she didn't know it
2: yeah it, i've been thinking a lot about her physical ugliness which peter skockle in his book until um, we have faces correctly asserts is is not metaphorical it's an actual physical ugliness but her ugliness is a gift because her queenship stems from her ugliness. Had she been beautiful, she would have been married off to some minor prince long since. But, you know, her, her father says, you know, your face is not going to be good. You might as well make use of your mind. I mean, it's a paraphrase. But all of the gifts that come to her, come to her because of her ugliness. And she gets this power that's almost unheard of for a woman in that period, in part because of her ugliness. And then she manages her own ugliness by putting on, on the veil, but she would not have been given all of those great things. And if you read the very end, you know, Arnom's note, and she was the most wise and valiant of all the princes and she fixed the floor and she deepened the river and she set the, you know, she's an amazing queen and Pooby loves her and her people love her and Bardia loves her and the Fox loves her. And, you know, I mean, she gets all of this love and adulation because of her ugliness but all she can think about is how you know redival had curly curly blonde hair <laughs> and so it's this selfishness that just suffocates her all the way through almost all the way through
0: i love that redival's hair still pops up even in the dream where she's gathering the the wool yeah. for psyche right where where she's doing her work she's still like oh well redival's ringlets are nothing compared to that <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, and Chris, to your point too, this kind of Williamsian substitution—it says in Book Two, when she sees um, when she sees Psyche having to do all these tasks, it's Orwell who psychically bears all of those. Right? It's easy for Psyche because Orwell suffered, and her sufferings are redemptive. Right? This is almost like you know, like Mary's sufferings or, or the, the filling up the sufferings of Christ. And the God says to her, another bore nearly all the anguish. Mm-hmm. So while Psyche has been a Christ figure throughout the, throughout the, the book, now Orwal is the Christ figure and Orwell is Psyche too. And you know, remember, psyche means soul. So she represents the human soul, and this kind of substitutionary suffering that ends up setting psyche free. So while she caused psyche's damage, she also provides the ticket by which psyche can become reunited with love and become a goddess. In fact, <laughs> it's so delicious. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, it's, it's, there are just so many moments throughout this that they're they're just all so good. Going back to to chapter one, um, the interview between Ansett and Oriol. Yes, um, yes. It's just so, like, I, I was listening to that today, and I found myself just kind of tearing up a little bit uh, because it's just so, it's so deep and beautiful, and I didn't realize the extent to which Ansett sort of, even though I think, I, I take your point, Andrew, and I think you're right about, you know, Oriol spoiling, to an extent, the, um, the Eros between the two of them. She gets it in a way that Oriol doesn't. Um, and yep. she understands that she can't be Bardia's whole reason for being, and that to do that would be to um, uh, rob him of himself. Uh, because because what it says is, I, I had what you left of him, Queen. I had that, um, but you didn't leave much. He was exhausted every night and she like remembers like oh shoot i totally did like pile up work with him to give him a, you know to give myself an excuse to keep him there to, to keep him like at the palace right
2: well and that's a double betrayal too yeah because bardia loves her with philia with friendship mm-hmm. right and when he says it's a pity you were born a woman that cuts orwal to the quick because orwal has arrows for bardia She's in love with him, but she betrays that Eros by never speaking it to him, even though it could never have gone anywhere, but she's dishonest about it. She thwarts Eros in her own life, and then she's cut to the quick by Bardia saying, it's a pity you were born a a woman, that you weren't born a man. But what Bardia is saying is, like Lewis says in the friendship chapter in Four Loves, friends are two people who stand shoulder to shoulder looking at the same thing the same way. And Bardia says, we both love sword fighting and you're better at it than me. And I wish that we could share this thing. I wish we could be better friends. Mm -hmm. We're separated by gender. So she's betraying Bardia's friendship by keeping him there. She's betraying Bardia's Storgi, his familial love, his duty love, you know, by keeping him there too long. But then there's this marvelous moment there in chapter one where Ansett's being really cruel and cold to her. And finally, she um, Orwell whips off the mask. She says, what I cried, is it possible you're jealous? I sprang to my feet and pulled aside my veil. Look, look, you fool. Are you jealous of this? She started back from me gazing so that for a moment, I wondered if my face were a terror to her, but it was not fear that moved her. For the first time, that prim mouth of hers twitched. The tears began to gather in her eyes. Oh, she gasped. Oh, I never knew you also what you loved him. Well, you've suffered too. We both. And so that phrase, you also remember is what Lewis says is the initial phrase between friends. What yeah. you too, right? Right. And so Ansett and Orwell have the possibility of being friends because they were both in love with Bardia. Yeah. How many times have you known, you know, a couple of women who became friends after they broke up with the same boyfriend, <laughs> right? They could have been united in friendship over the fact that they loved and lost Bardia and could have in some ways kind of completed each other's loss and filled in. But then in a moment, the veil drops again on both sides. And so she's thwarting. Friendship. So she has thwarted Eros and Storgi in Bardia. She thwarted Eros in Ansett. And then there's this possibility of Philia. And then the veil drops again, because she has been so selfish and demanding and Ansett cogently says, you're like unget you demanding and you yeah. know, you're bloodthirsty and you're, you know, so it's just a masterpiece of these kind of showing how those four loves kind of all fall apart. She says, why did you not tell
1: me, right? Why did you not tell me that you were, that I was devouring your husband, right? A word from you would have sufficed or are you like the gods who will speak only when it is too late Mm -hmm. tell you, she said, looking at me with a sort of proud wonder tell you and so take away from him his work, which was his life for what's any woman to a man and a soldier in the end and all his glory and his great deeds make a child and a dotard of him, keep him to myself at that cost. Make him so mine that he was no longer his? And yet, he would have been yours, but I would be his. I was his wife, not his doxy. He was my husband, not my house dog. He was to live the life he thought best and fittest for a great man. Not that which would most pleasure me. She, She's sort of a counter... You know, she's a she's a foil, um, in in some ways for for Oriol. And in that she not only sort of shows her, okay, here's here's what love looks like when it allows someone to be themselves and doesn't require them to be everything to you or require that you be everything to them, right? Yeah. (laughs) I love the uh, woman said, I, I saved his life, thankless fool. You had been widowed many a year sooner if I'd not been there one day on the field of Ingarn and got that wound, which still aches at every change of weather. Where are your scars? Where a woman's are when she is born eight children. Uh, is,
2: nice. awesome. Well, and you know, she also, I hadn't ever noticed this until you just talked about it now. Chris. This is great. It's going to go in the book and I'm not going to give you any credit. Awesome. Um, uh, <laughs> She has now thwarted divine love because Ancid's eros for Bardia is her romantic, you know, love for him, but then her self-sacrifice so that he could be who he was, right? That's divine love. That's agape. And Orwal's like, well, you could have had him for yourself, right? And this idea, this, this word mine comes up. You know, he could be mine. Well, he would have been less mine. That comes, that same word comes up in the great divorce where Pam. The mother right. says that she wants Michael and the boy is mine. How I can't believe in a God of love who would keep me from mine. He was mine, mine, mine. Mm-hmm. And that same phrase, mine, mine, mine comes up with Orwell talking to the gods about psyche. She was mine. She was mine. Don't you gods know what mine means? And so this mm-hmm. idea of grasping and turning into myself. And once again, book one, I am no answer. And so she's real beginning to realize that she is no answer to go out of ourselves towards the other. That's what answered is doing. And Orwell can't understand that self-sacrificing sort of love. She doesn't really recognize it because she's never experienced it. She's experienced it from lots of people, but she's never internalized it. And that's part of what's going on. Also,
1: I love, by the way, the, the um, description of writing a book um, and Mm -hmm. That she's, uh, the continual labor of mine to which it put me began to overflow into my sleep. It was a labor of sifting and sorting, separating motive from motive and both from pretext. And the same sorting went on every night in my dreams, but in a changed fashion. I thought I had before me a huge hopeless pile of seeds, wheat, Mm -hmm. barley, poppy, rye, millet, whatnot and I must sort them out and make separate piles, each all of one kind, which like as to someone who for the last five years has been trying to turn his dissertation into a book, like <laughs> it's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not only a description of writing of a book, but a description of the writing of a book about one's own life, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and like the whole, this is the whole thing that I'm about, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, the way in which her own motives are being sorted Uh, one from another the way these seeds are being sorted
2: yeah and that's the psychic labor that sets psyche free i mean that's the psyches doing uh, or orwell's doing psyches penitence um for for having betrayed the god
1: chapter 2 she's um she she kind of gets new perspective on her her relationship with Unget namely that she is Unget um mm-hmm. in chapter 2 and i love i love this description of um mm. and i don't know if it's out of uh the golden bow or out of something else but um but this sort of uh you know the the priest Uh, you know, fighting his way out. It kind of reminds me of, I've I've been to Easter at an Orthodox service before and they do something vaguely like this, right? Where they knock on the door and say, Christos enviat, right? This new year, right? Then um, the priest has to fight his way out of the yeah. um, out of the house of Unget with a sword, and everyone's happy, and you know, people who used to be enemies are shaking hands and clapping themselves each other on the back. And during all of this, she sees this woman. <laughs> She asks if un- unget has has comforted her oh yes queen said the woman her face almost brightening oh yes unget has given me great comfort there's no goddess like unget do you always pray to that unget said i nodding towards the shapeless stone and not to that here i nodded toward our new image standing tall and straight in her robes and whatever the fox might say of it the loveliest thing our land has ever seen oh always this queen said she that other the greek unget she wouldn't understand my speech she's only for nobles and learned men there's no comfort in her. Right, so this this way in which this peasant woman is able to be comforted by this like shapeless mass of stone, as opposed to the ungut with human beauty, right? That's just always been a really fascinating passage to me, and I, I wonder what you all make of it.
0: The old unget was the darker unget, right? Like it's it's more the the blood and the Greek unget is more of the water that's clear and philosophical. Um, but the old unget, she was more rugged than ever because of all the blood they'd poured over her in the night and the little clots and chains of it. I made out a face, a fancy mm. one moment. But then once you had seen it not to be evaded, a face such as you might see in a loaf. Swollen, brooding, infinitely female. It was a little like Bada as I remembered her of her mood. From her huge, hot, strong, yet flabby, soft embraces, the smothering, engulfing tenacity of her. (laughs) Unget is very like Bada today. That's such a weird depiction of femininity. Flabby, strong, lumpy, loafy, yeasty... Blood. Yeah, like it's it's so evocative on a whole bunch of different levels. But it, it's very dark and mysterious.
2: Well, and you have to take this too with Lewis's great poem called Reason, or as Don King has retitled it in the in the collected poems, Set on the Souls Acropolis. And so this is a poem that Lewis writes before he's a Christian and he's opposing the high stone, marble, cool, virginal reason of Athena, and then the infernal dark, he uses dark like three different times, of Demeter, who's the earth goddess. She's the blood goddess. She's the doughy, lumpy. And remember that the stone comes up from the earth, right? It doesn't fall from the sky. So unget is the infernal. She's, I think, in some ways the the Demeter goddess. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what you see Lewis portraying is this statuesque virginal marble kind of Athena reason.
0: Is this the Venus infernal taught such eyes to bear themselves abroad for merchandise, horrible woman nature, bending beauty down? To ruthless tasks from infatuation. His, his um, poem on infatuation. Maybe. Well, he 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 often does the Venus Infernal and Venus Terrestrial, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And he talks about the difference between Venus and Eros. He, he distinguishes between the two. So yeah, there are those elements to it, uh, uh, to it as well. I think yours may be a little bit more accurate because it's Venus. This is Athena versus Demeter. Right. But he says, set on the soul's Acropolis, the reason stands a virgin armed, commersing with celestial light. And he who sins against her has defiled his own virginity. No cleansing makes his garment white. So clear is reason, but how dark, Imagining, warm, dark, obscure, which is Latin for dark, (laughs) and infinite, the daughter of night. Night is capitalized. Nyx is the goddess of night. She's the mother of Demeter. Dark is her brow. There's dark again. Dark is her brow. The beauty of her eyes with sleep is loaded, and her pains are long, and her delight. Tempt not, Athena, wound not in her fertile pains, Demeter, Mm -hmm. nor rebel against her mother right. Oh, who will reconcile in me both maid and mother who making me a concord of the depth and height who make imaginations dim exploring touch that's Demeter that's the earthy infernal, you know, creative who make imagination's dim exploring touch ever report the same as intellectual sight. Then could I truly say and not deceive, then wholly say that I believe. So for Lewis, the combination of the marble ungut and the infernal ungut is the path to belief. And so Lewis wants us to see clearly that the highest does not stand without the lowest. He says this all the time in the Four Loves. So yeah, that's, there's some of that at play in here too.
1: She lies down, her father suddenly wakes her up. She's like, oh shoot, of course, none of this stuff that's happened could be true. I'm still a girl in the house with my father. And he commands her to begin digging in the pillar room down the go. Um, and this is by the way, after she has asked the priest Arnhem, who is Ungit? Um, and Arnhem gives some, you know, goofy answer, you know, that, that, and she's like, eh, I don't really buy that, you know, if she's the Earth, why couldn't you just say she's the Earth? Um, And now she's digging into the Earth, um, and digging down and digging down and and she and the her father repeatedly tells her okay keep digging and she digs again and they end up in a lower pillar room that's even darker and hotter than the one before and then she digs again in another pillar room um, so all of these layers that she's sort of digging down into and then finally he brings her up to the mirror but my face was the face of unget as I had seen it that day in her house who is unget asked the king I am on get. my voice came wailing out of me. And I found that I was in the cool daylight and in my own.
2: And she despairs of it too. Mm-hmm. She's such an idiot. <laughs> so I had a student years ago in my NSC-S Lewis class point out, point this out to me. There's three pillar rooms. And three digging. And obviously we're digging into the subconscious, right? You know, it's this vision of digging down and digging down. And then her father grabs her by the neck and holds her face into the mirror and says, who is unget And she despairs and wails, I am unget Okay. So there's another instance of three diggings in Lewis's writings. Do you remember? But the three specific diggings are those of Eustace.
0: Oh, as he's the dragon.
2: Right. So he yes. falls asleep on a dragon's hoard, wakes up uh, thinking dragonish thoughts, wakes up and is ugly, mm-hmm. right? And so he's afraid of himself. He sees the smoke. He sees his arms. He goes to the pool and then he despairs, right? And then he tries and then Asin comes, And he says, you must under, you know, and so he digs himself out of his dragon skin and there's another one. And he digs himself under, out of the dragon skin. And there's another one. And he digs himself out of the dragon skin. And then finally, Aslan says, you must let me undress you and pierces him with his claw and pulls off the skin. And then it hurt like Billy-O, right? When he tosses him in the pool, which is clearly a sign of regeneration and baptism. But when Eustace looks into the pool, he sees how ugly he is, and so he lives, which is the exact opposite. And Lewis is constantly flipping things, flipping mythologies upside down. This is the exact opposite of the Narcissus myth. Mm. Narcissus looks into the river, sees how beautiful he is, and dies. Eustace looks into the mirror, finally realizes what a jerk he is, how ugly he has become, and so lives. And it's the three diggings out of his own accord that doesn't do anything. And then this is the three diggings down into the pillar room. And finally there's the mirror and there's another mirror and mirrors are crucial in Lewis. And so the mirror is that narciss- narcissistic, you know, image. And he holds her up and says, who are you? And she says, oh, I'm Unget. She despairs because she has a hateful view of Unget, but Unget is actually loving towards her all of her life. And we know this because her portrayals of Unget as being grasping and ugly and selfish and cruel. Our perjury she admitted it in the first paragraph of book two so unget isn't really being hateful to her unget is actually loving her and by confessing with her mouth that she is love that's what she's saying i am the goddess of love she thinks that it's wrong because she doesn't see clearly. And here's that clarity coming up again. But that three diggings is the echo of the abandonment of narcissism. And remember, love is where we go out of ourselves to meet the other. The opposite of love is self. And this is the core of what Lewis is doing in so much of his work. I mean, this is mere Christianity in many ways, but that's what I think he's doing, at least in part metaphorically, with these visions, 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 And in her vision she realizes that she's love and she confesses that she's love even though she doesn't know what the words are or what the words mean but she is love and she's beloved so ah. Mm. (laughs) that's
1: super cool i love i love the idea of the inversion of the narcissus myth and i think you're absolutely right about the um the the similarity to The undragoning of Eustace. He Um,
2: flips myths all the time, by the way. The silver chair is a flipping of the, um, well, it's a regendering and a flipping of the Adam and Eve story. The signs are given to the woman, not to the man, Mm -hmm. right? It's a flipping of the Orpheus tale. So the queen entraps by music instead of Orpheus freeing by music. And Lewis is actually quoting a couple of different Latin versions of Orpheus and Tolkien's translation of Sir Orfeo in the silver chair. So there's that flipping. There's a flipping of the allegory of the cave that the light is represents the sun and she's trying to. Yeah. He's he's yep. constantly flipping these myths upside down. Yeah. So
1: yeah, I, um, I think and and the idea of her seeing herself is, um, and and living is, um, is, mm-hmm. is really important. Initially, of course, she wants to die. Right. And, and you have this. Uh, you have this moment where she's over another reflective surface, and this is something that, that has mm-hmm. really stuck out to me this time going through. The places where the god seems to talk to her are over water. You have the moment where um, she first hears the god's voice when he speaks to her when yeah. Psyche's house falls down. Yeah. Uh, and then you have this moment where she's about to take her own life by jumping into the river which is what in some ways like should have happened when she defied the god the first time and when she tempted psyche the first time but the god says do not do it you cannot you cannot escape by going to the deadlands and it and it calls back you know it's a voice from beyond the river right do not do it It was the voice of a god who should know better than I. A god's voice had once shattered my whole life, which is also when there's this flood, right, happening, and God is calling to her across uh, the all all this flood. And then, of course, the final time that she hears the voice of the god is also over this pool, right, over Uh over this water, where she looks down and she sees that she is. Um, psyche and the voice of the gods. You also are psyche, um, mm-hmm. but that really is interesting to me. And it, it I, I guess it has something to do with the fact that she's. This, this has to do with her self-image, right? It has to do with her, um, her, her sense of self. But yeah, I'd never, I'd never noticed that before. The places where the god audibly speaks to her are all over mm. water, which is interesting.
0: I think it's interesting too. This is the first time I've thought of. Túrin Turambar. I may be way out of left field here, but the when she goes to the sword first, and then to the water, and the the sword looks, and she addresses the sword, right, and she Mm -hmm. to it. I'm reminded of of Túrin's suicide, of his despair after discovering the dragon and tricked him, of course. And this is this is Tolkien. Túrin Turambar is like the most tragic story ever. This guy is fated to sleep with his sister and Mm. ends up like running away from home. So it doesn't happen. But then by running away from home, it ends up happening. It's very Oedipus and fate's master by fate mastered. Um, He, he makes every wrong choice, kills his best friend, all these terrible things. Um, And the end it's all revealed to him by the voice of the dragon. And he despairs, he kills himself with a sword and his sister wife throws herself off, off like a, a waterfall or mm, mm. Like into the mouth of the river and like just seeking some sort of release from this pain and knowing she's bearing an incestuous child and all this terrible stuff. And the, the despair there and the, the silence of the gods in, mm. at least in the Silmarillion and the lack of a mediator to come through for, for that terror. And mm-hmm. the, the gift of having a God speak, especially mm-hmm. for Orwell who has complained all this time, where are the gods? They don't speak. Why, why do they set us riddles? Or if they do, they hover and they hint and they're never clear. And here where she's about to kill herself once she's too feeble, like she can't do the sword, but there where she tries at the water, she is stopped and halted and given this great gift and it's such a different perspective and of course tolkien's work is never so obviously christian but it is faith infuses everything oh yeah it's so mediated and and so catholic in that way and for lewis is much more immediate here are the gods intervening (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I just never um, seen that before that contrast.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, Tolkien said famously that subconsciously in its writing and consciously in its in its revision, the Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and even Catholic work. Yeah. And so those faith messages are infusing all of those. I hadn't made that connection before, but you know, it, it, they, those guys were breathing the same imaginative space for so many years. The water thing is real, is really interesting. And I'm glad that you pointed that out. I hadn't thought about that. And there's the waterfall speaking in the great divorce and all the rest water is huge for Lewis, yeah. but there's that, that moment that you bring up at the river. So she goes and she thinks like he's crazy. And then she goes back and she sleeps and she gets up at midnight and she's thirsty. So that should echo the Jill thing, right? In in Assen's country, and Lewis is echoing the you know the the uh, the dominical say, saying you know if anyone is thirsty, let him drink from the Gospels. But she doesn't see the palace until she kneels to drink. Her thirst leads her to kneel, and even assuming the physical posture of humility and self-abandonment, allows her vision. She can remember clarity and charity. She can see the moment that she uh, assumes the position of humility, and humility is the first stage of love, right? It's out of ourselves. So she gets down on her knees, and she drinks, and she then sees the palace. So there's this connection between self-abandonment and vision that happens with Lucy. Lucy's always worried about what everybody else is feeling, you know, oh, poor Tumnus, oh, poor Edmund. So I think that that's kind of crucial in a lot of what's going on here. And then remember when she goes back, it's not the gods are lying to us. She lies by omission to the fox and to Bardia. She never tells them that she actually saw the god's house. And so her made up version of the story that she tells them, they buy into, and then she starts railing against the gods. And the first time I read that, I'm like agreeing with her. And yeah, the gods are terrible, but she's lying to them. She's not telling them that she saw God's house. Can you imagine what would ha- have happened to the fox if she convinced the fox that she actually saw the house of the God of the gray mountain? The fox would have been, hey, there's philosophy and re- religion coming together. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's see her. And she can't see because she has refused the invitation to joy a few chapters earlier. Why should your heart not dance? She says no to joy. And it steals her vision, just like the dwarves would not be taken in. Mm -hmm. And but even her physical hunger, which joy imitates in its longing nature, even her physical thirst invites her to vision and she then lies about it and keeps lying to herself until she can't lie anymore.
1: That refusal, right, of joy and of, um, and of the gods has a way of fracturing her, her reality and blinding her in a way that it requires something as sort of inchoate and almost senile as uh, the face of unget and her dreams as an old woman to like reconcile the sort of fractured reality that she's that she's living in that like this part of the reason that the face of unget is comforting to 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 people is is that there's a sort of participation on the part of the person when they're looking at that stone they're seeing lots of different faces right and oriole of course sees like all like nasty faces right there's a parallel between that face of unget that's also many faces and these many many visions that she has at the end of her life when you could probably say that she's losing her mind but at the same time what it's doing is weaving everything back together for mm-hmm. her that she, through her insistence that the gods behave like rational mortals and not ask more than mm-hmm. mortals have a right to ask of, of mortals, right? Has, has kind of like, she's sort of fractured her own reality in these, in these ways that now that her mind is failing is being woven back together um, because she is, Weak enough to allow it to be woven back together, you know, the, you have, you have all these different dreams that finally, you know, culminate in this moment of, um, of catastrophe, right? Um, the moment mm-hmm. when she is about to die, well, it's because of that weakness that something stronger can, can come in and, and, and help, um, you know, and, and help her find joy, right? And find love and, and, and know and, and, and be fulfilled. There's this great moment in one of the, these first visions in chapter in chapter three where she's gathering the wool, right? Gathering the um the the golden fleece of these um, goats. Goats rams. They're rams. Being trampled by them, right? They were not doing it in anger. They rushed over me in their joy. Perhaps they did not see me. Certainly I was nothing in their minds. I understood it well. They butted and trampled me because their gladness led them on. The divine nature wounds and perhaps destroys us merely by being what it is. We call it the wrath of the gods as if the great cataract and fars were angry with every fly it sweeps down in its green thunder. So this like insight into the divine nature, it's just stronger than me. It's not that it's, it's not that it hates me. It's not that the God of the mountain hates me. It's that he is greater than, than me. Um, but I love that moment. I love how the the insight that it gives.
0: It's very great divorcee, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the grass, the very grass hurting you because it's too real. And too- yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. and Ungut has a thousand faces,
0: mm-hmm. right?
2: Also, the woman re- should remind us of the charwoman in in Screw Tape Letters you know, singing lustily. And, you know, the patient disdains this woman who's getting so much out of worship while he's not getting anything out of worship. Mm -hmm. Um, But anytime you see unget, you have to replace it with love because Mm -hmm. that's who she is. Aphrodite is love. And who are you? I am love. And love has a thousand faces and Mm -hmm. she doesn't have enough face to see the faces. So because Lewis is always flipping things backwards and there's cleverness and code a lot of times in what's going on. Um, I try to start playing around by flipping around the names and seeing if the names had any signal meaning, especially because psyche means soul it's suke it's Greek for soul. Um, And it's a profound allegory, and I'll call it an allegory because Lewis's successor in the Cambridge chair, J. W. Bennett, called it a very profound modern allegory. It's Psyche marries the God of love who himself is the son of the God of love. So the human soul is the bride of the son of God.
0: Mm.
2: Okay, that's what I do every Sunday. I don't know about you. So because Psyche is the signal name, I started playing around. Bata is Italian for she beats or she strikes, mm. which is certainly true of her history of abuse. Uh, Obardia is the name of like a, a World War II supply dump. It's a soldier name. It's a military name from World War II, which of course Lewis followed very closely because Warney was serving. And then I started going further afield. Look at Trom's name. Now flip it backwards. Yeah. And what's that going to remind you of? Death. Latin for death, but also what famous story about a king who had deluded himself with too young a wife, the Mort d'Arthur. Right. There's all of that. And so that has has all of those kind of hints and elements to them. Let's see. Oh, Redival. If you flip it backwards, it's French. La videre means the empty one. (laughs) Now, I don't know if Lewis intended it, we do have one other example, contemporaneous, the same year he writes about, um, it's a Christmas story about Trib, which is written backwards. So we have another instance where he has flipped names backwards. Orwal, flip it backwards. It's lauro, which is the ablative la- laurai, meaning laurel. So the ablative lauro means with laurel. How are queens and kings crowned in the ancient world? Lauro with laurel. So it implies her crown. Once again, this is just me pulling out of thin air, and I don't know if it's true, and it's I wouldn't base all of my research on this. <laughs> unget backwards is tignu in Icelandic, which Lewis read with Tolkien. There's a word tigin, which means worthy of honor. Mm. Tigin only becomes tignu in one case and gender, and that is the accusative female the feminine accusative <laughs> of worthy of honor is tignu which is unget backwards and 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 orwell is accusing the goddess unget for the whole book and so i think that lewis is having one on with us about these names you know plus you also have to have unget you know you, like i said you have to think of unget and her son as both meaning love but I think that there are layers and layers and layers to this book.
1: So, given the, I, I, I wanna, I wanna know more about the unget thing because that's the, that's the aspect of what you're saying that I'm most sort of conflicted about, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure I'm ready to bow the knee to unget so to speak um and uh and and there because just because okay. there's a there's a place where like and i'm i'm like i have no idea what she is like unget is one of the most puzzling aspects of of this book to me because yeah she seems to have such a negative role but at the same time like you're saying she's certainly related to the god of the mountain right okay uh, but
2: how do we see her negativity um,
1: through the perjury of orwell so um, what
2: does unget do that's cruel
1: she seems to be the the human way of approaching the gods that is still very much like stained with uh, humans lack like there's there's a place where and i, I want to hear what you make of this um mm-hmm. in her kind of in her vision on uh in in chapter uh uh four and i know we're getting a bit ahead but but um, she's asking uh, the fox, then there is a real Unget, and the fox says, all, even Psyche, are born into the house of Unget, and all must get free from her, or say that Unget and each must bear Unget's son and jo- die in childbed, or change, and now Psyche must go down to the Deadlands to get beauty in a casket from the Queen of the Deadlands from Death herself, and bring it back to give it to Unget so that Unget will become beautiful but yeah she's she's unget but i almost see that as like her saying in the face of the divine there's this sort of shadow that's cast right um and and that shadow is what i've been calling unget right i'm curious about your um, interpretation of unget as being like necessarily a goddess of love
2: right well the fox says that she is your aphrodite but mm-hmm. more like the Babylonian one, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the that's the purchase for thinking of Ungut as love. Lewis himself says that I'm kind of portraying these things in a pre-Christian world, in a kind of murky backwater pagan ritualistic religion. And so the prostitution and all of that stuff is not Ungut; it's what the priest it's the religion that arrives uh, arises around her. That's not what Ungut is necessarily doing. that's the created religion. That's the unget cult created by the Glomian society. And it's a uh, uh, pre-Doris Myers in her book, Bare Face, dates this to about 300 BC. And so it's a pre-incarnate, pre-messianic world. And so what you have, and this is very Lewisian, is these echoes of the Son of God coming through in Even through, you know, like you see it with Emeth at the ba- at the end of the last battle, right? You see that God trying to reveal himself through all religions and, and giving these echoes that become fulfilled in Christ. And that's, of course, myth become fact. And that's mm-hmm. the long night talk, talk and all of that. That's Lewis kind of being a, as he said, a converted pagan in the land of apostate Puritans. So there's a little of that that's going on. And I don't know I don't know if that helps enough.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um and, and that also yeah, that also I think touches a bigger issue um in, in this book that I think is a really important issue and a really interesting issue, the extent to which, you know, even names like Unget, right, or or the God of the Mountain are assigned to these divine figures by pre Christian culture. So we don't have the whole truth of unget I suppose, and we don't have the whole no. truth of the God of the Mountain or or, or any no. of that because to to an extent it is
2: it is hidden The Hebrew scripture says the clouds are round about him and shadows veiled him. Yeah. And I just finished taking a class on the Holy Trinity and I'm as in the dark about the Holy Trinity now yeah. so, before I spent a whole semester, you know, on it. And so these are inklings or, you know, kind of uh, rumors from the sculptor shop. It's patches of God light, you know, mm-hmm. kind of shining through. And for Lewis pagan is not a negative word, right? You know, it's positive. He loved yeah. this. And so he's, And remember, it's a supposal, like all of Lewis's fiction, Mm -hmm. what would the son of God look like in a land where animals could talk? This would be, you know, kind of what would the myth of the dying and rising God or the God of love do with a hardened heart in a pagan culture that's not even Greek in its superstition of religion. So that's some of what's going on there, I think.
0: Like we think of the judgment being when our lives are are measured and we are in in the dock but mm-hmm. this this is actually this is actually orwell coming with her complaint not as a prisoner but as a plaintiff mm-hmm. and putting the gods in the dock
2: um,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. and finding what that Ends up doing for her, and and how ridiculous she ends up being, but the the revelation it is for her.
1: Yeah, Annika, I I would like to know. There's tons of legal language here, and and tons of places where I mean, we're 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 talking about um, this this vision in chapter three where she f- is bringing her book slash a bowl of beauty to the. Um, to this, to this mountain that's full of snakes, and she's ushered in by some eagle. Um, so very, like, very much in the domain of dream vision here, right? But it leads her into this court. She sees the the fox there, and is she's asked to sort of bring her complaint against the gods, right? And to, to read the book
0: to be heard. The court awaits. She she's she's on the docket. You know, yeah. she mm-hmm. she got in to the judge make her stand up silence for her complaint. This is her big moment. This is her chance. The thing she wanted all this time was to confront the gods. Yeah. And this is her, her day in court, her justice.
2: And by the way, I mean, people get mad at me, you know, when I did my summer long series on one chapter till we have faces a week, people always get mad at me when I say this, but Orwell is lying. She's lying. She is not telling the truth. She's lying. Wall is deliberately deceiving. She's deceiving herself, but she's also deceiving her readers. And you see that result when she reads her complaint. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. you also, that big clue is to leave it thus would be to die perjured. And there's another legal term. But remember what happens at the very second paragraph. This That is, I will, of the book, the whole book. That is, I will tell all he has done for me from the beginning as if I were making my complaint of him before a judge. But there is no judge between gods and men, and the God on the mountain will not answer me. Baloney! (laughs) Two lies in the same same line. There is a judge. And, of course, that should echo there is one judge between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. That's clearly a biblical echo. But so now she's there before the judge. And she reads her complaint. But then she says, it's kind of like, you know, the analogy I use is like the bum who's standing on the side of the road, just kind of reciting his thing, you know, doing his rant.
0: And, and all, all, all scribble, each stroke mean and yet savage, like the snarl in my father's voice. Yes. Like the places one could make out in the unget stone. Yeah. And it's, it's short. Going back to. The Great Divorce. It's a mutter, like the the woman. Like a grumble. comes The the grumbling, muttering. Yeah. 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 Turned in on herself, and there's nothing left of her except that complaint. Yeah.
2: I think that her complaint is only one or two letters long. I think it's either me or I. I I I I I I I I I I I I I, me 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 me. Remember, love is where we go out of ourselves towards the other, and she's been making up these kind of this, These complaints, you know, even you see it when she's going up the mountain, and the voice says to her, "Why should your heart not dance?" Mm. And she said it wasn't an actual voice, but she hears it in her head, and she gives this litany of reasons why she has for her heart not to dance. I, the ugly, I can expect no other love. Blah 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 blah, blah, blah. and yet I can hardly believe it, right? But she never asks who's speaking and who is speaking. She's on the gray mountain. Who's speaking to her? The God of the gray mountain is speaking to her. Eros is speaking to her. And we know that Eros is speaking to her because in like three pages, Eros's wife says, oh, Orwal, why should our hearts not dance? Right? And so what you're hearing is probably, and I never thought about this before, probably this intimate phrase between Eros and Psyche. Hmm. Oh, darling, why should our hearts not dance? Right. All of her fears are past. And so love has been inviting her. And by the way, had she said yes to that invitation to dance, she would have leapt out in faith and received this kind of joy. She would have seen Psyche in her beauty in three pages, but her refusal blinds her in the same way that the divorce would not be taken in. They can't see Assen's country as being beautiful. They see it as a closed up stable. Or while two because she refuses joy, which is the invitation to love. And remember at the end of surprised by joy, Lewis says, what then of joy? Well, I admit that although it still happens as frequently as ever, it's served only as a signpost to something other and outer. Lewis says that joy is a signpost to something other and outer. And in 58, five years later, He says, love is where we go out of ourselves to meet the other, other and outer. These are key phrases. Joy is only a signpost towards love. And the opposite of love is me, which is what the extent of her complaint is. Me, 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 me. And at the end of the book, it says, are you answered? Yes, I am answered. I ended my last book with the words, no answer. Now I understand. I know now, Lord, why you give no answer. You yourself are the answer. And who is she speaking to? It's the God of the gray mountain. It's the son of love who himself is love. I know now love why you give no answer. You love are the answer. What other answer besides love would suffice before your face, all other, the face of love, all other answers die away. So that's the crucial thing. And that's why I love this book so much because it puts, it's all of what Lewis is saying. And it's the heart of the gospel right there in the middle of everything.
1: Yeah. And I love, I love that she ends book four with you yourself are the answer. And she begins book four with the complaint was the answer, right? Right. Um, Leading from what she'd been talking about there that in, in chapter three, where she'd realized, Mm -hmm. oh shoot, this is just like, I'm not upset that the gods are, Horrible and evil. I'm upset that they're beautiful, and I'm upset mm-hmm. that they're good, and that they're stealing mm-hmm. the hearts of all our best people. Mm-hmm. And I don't get to have people worship me as God. Uh, that she has no right to ask for that from um, from others.
2: Child, to say the th- very thing you really mean, the whole of it, and nothing more or less or other than what you really mean. Mm-hmm. That's the whole art and joy of words. That's my motto as a writer. A glib glib saying, when the time comes at which you will be forced at last out of the speech which has lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time idiot-like been saying over and over, you'll not talk about joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer till that word can be dug out of us. There's your digging again. Why should they hear the babble that we think we mean, Mm. which is all of book one? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces?
1: And and there's this interesting moment where after she says this, you know, um, and she's still in this vision with the, you know, the, mm-hmm. she's just made her complaint against the god. Her her father asks for her. Best leave the girl to me," said a well-known voice. "I'll lessen her." Right. <laughs> it was the spectre which had been my father. Then a new voice spoke from beneath me. It was the foxes. I thought he too was going to give some terrible evidence against me, but he said, "Oh, Minos, or or Radamanthus, or Persephone." Or by whatever name you are called, I am to blame for most of this, and I should bear the punishment. so it's it's fascinating that just as this is happening this journey is happening in Oriole's soul, mm-hmm. um, all of these other figures as well, the fox is also realizing, oh shoot. I've been self-centered in this, you know, in this particular way. And this is my fault that she's like this, you know, and I'm sure Bardia as well, if he appeared, would have the same sort of, realization right where people realize in the face of the divine that they've been fools in in mm-hmm. one way or another and been selfish the the way that the fox just kind of steps up even though we've been talking about the ways in which Oriole should have been better right uh, a better daughter to the fox works both ways yeah the fox is like oh i you know this is this is down to me i'm the one that that messed her up in this way and 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 he's given the opportunity to to teach her something that's true here, yeah. uh, which is which is beautiful.
0: To make his own confession, right? Like no. I, yes. I didn't think this was a that a prattle of maxims would do for of course water's good, all thin and clear as water. For of course water's good and it didn't cost much not where I grew up. So I fed her on words mm-hmm. uh, and, and his own satisfaction with shallow things yeah, and, and his satisfaction with, she thought I was wise. I didn't want her asking why I didn't know uh, yeah. why, why unget who unget was, why unget had power, why people got something. Cause I didn't know. I, I don't know now. I, I love that uh, yeah. even in his death in the, the chapter of the Fox well, and the
2: whole funky relationship with language language Right. So she's Mm -hmm. writing and it's in Greek. I would love I would love some Greek student to translate this whole book into Greek, (laughs) literally, because I think that there are a ton of inside. I think Lewis was translating it from writing it in Greek in his head and translating it in English. I'm pretty sure that because he did that with uh, the Oxford History of English Literature, he would translate foreign language in the 1600s, in the 16th century, in the 1500s, he would translate that into Elizabethan English for fun. And he did prose comp all the time. I would love to see what would happen if if somebody of the knowledge of classical Greek could translate it into Greek, but this thing about language. And so she's got her scroll, but her scroll is both lying and not sufficient. It's not big until the word can be dug out of you, right? And I fed her with language. Also, he calls her Maya, and Maya is the mother of Hermes, and Hermes is the inventor of language. So she's the grandmother of language in this nickname. So there's all of this linguistic stuff going on. I want to let you know what the last words of the book are that are blanked out. Read the note from Arnum.
1: Oriole has just had her big epiphany and she's writing furiously in her book and then you have I might and then you have in italics I Arnum, priest of Aphrodite saved this role and put it in the temple. From the markings after the word might we think the queen's head must have fallen forward on them as she died and we cannot read them.
2: I ended my first book with the words no answer now this is the second or third time she has pointed out the words no answer which is why at the end of last episode i said let's pay attention to last words and first words and that's that's fair literary criticism this lewis is signaling us to do this no answer And so I am no answer is the beginning of wisdom, right? That's the fear of the Lord. When she abandons herself, when she gets on her knees, when she realizes that she is no answer, I know now, Lord, look at how she calls him. She calls him Lord, right? Kyrios, right? In Greek. And she's calling him by the name that we will call Christ. She calls them good gods. Her heart is softened towards the God and she's addressing the God of the mountain. She's addressing the pre-incarnate Christ figure as a reflected in this culture. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. And who is he? He is love. Love is love's self, the answer. Before love's face, Orwell has a thousand faces, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Only words words, to be led out to battle against other words. Long did I hate you. Listen to the cadence. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might. And she writes something. We know that she writes in ink. She writes something. And then her head, Arnam says, must have fallen forward. And we cannot read what she writes. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might what? What must she have written? Remember that hatred is all the way on one side. Fear, though, is ambivalent and the beginning of wisdom. Fear is a move. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might what, friends? Love you. I might love you. She writes it. She looks at it. Why do you bow your head in the ancient world? Why do you prostrate yourself in the ancient world? To worship. She realizes like Bruce Coburn says, when you love, love, then love loves you too. She realizes love you. And she does. She bows down to worship. It's not that Lewis has run out of steam. It's not that she just dies and swoons at this moment and hospice should have been called in that chapter before her head isn't falling. She's bowing. And in the act of bowing presses on her forehead words that we cannot read but is the name that god gives us all on our forehead you love and remember that lewis wouldn't pray until he believed you must picture me there in my rooms at maudlin night after night the moment my mind lifted even for a second from my work sensing the unrelenting approach of him who i most earnestly desired not to meet and remember if you've read early prose joy his first spiritual autobiography he talks about positing a vow means that he has to abandon his solipsism his only self mm-hmm. only me solo ipsus only myself and so to pray means to address somebody else thou that intimate word thou is the informal in elizabethan language i knelt and prayed and admitted that god was god thou he said she says love you and the last word she writes are you in direct address to the god of love and she bows in worship and she presses and now she has a face her face is you love because of course it's the order is backwards now and she has the love of god tattooed on her whole soul and has reconciled with the lord of love this is the gospel this is the clearest gospel tract i think lewis has ever written but how postmodernist of him to write by obscuring what he has written. Mm. But he calls our attention to the final two words. And now he calls our attention to the final two words. And once again, it's just exactly like the end of the last battle where uh, Dassin says to Lucy, I brought you here so that you may know me there. Are you there, sir? Yes, but you have to find out my name. His name is Love. That's why he says to in Lucy's ear, courage, dear heart, and why she carries the cordial. Both of those words come from the Latin corde, meaning heart. And Lucy sees because she loves. She sees because she goes out of herself towards the other and there's clarity and charity and he establishes love by hiding love like a riddle or a secret which is exactly what we know lewis does both in narnia and then in the overall project of narnia like with the planets michael ward has shown Mm -hmm. us that he has hidden things everywhere so that we can find them and here's this riddle and the riddle is you love and our response to the fact that he loves who we love because he first loved us And here's the two great commandments. Sorry, there's my rant and my sermon. No, that's
1: awesome. That's awesome. That's a great way to to wrap it up. Um, Final things that we didn't get to that you're just like, either of you are just itching to make sure to say, the ways in which... Um, she actually did help psyche complete her trials mm-hmm. right it's it's almost as though her visions up until that point and her life up until that point was like the back of a tapestry right and suddenly it's mm-hmm. flipped around and she can mm-hmm. see the ways in which these things that she was doing that didn't make sense at the time actually have helped her help the love of her life her sister to complete these tasks and not only that but because they're so deeply connected when she makes it up to the top mountain or or or, or whatever it it really reminds me of purgatorio because of the uh, moving pictures you know on the on the on the sides that the fox sort of shows to her um she she makes it up to the top and she sees her image next to psyche's image in the water um and and, and the god calling to her you also are psyche and, uh, um, and and then then this you know this, this beautiful um, uh, ending that, that you've been talking about, Andrew. Any final things about any of that that we should mention or that we should uh, that we should draw out before Just we end? The,
0: the beauty of the mercy of the gods and, mm-hmm. and that she blesses them for it that, that she, after finding herself so despairing of who she really is seeing her her real self she also has been given the gift of beauty of seeing her redeemed self and the part she played in psyche's redemption and it reminded me of uh, a band of kristen lauren's daughter kristen is dying and takes off she has uh, embedded in her finger uh, the way psyche has on her forehead the you love in andrew's theory which i, I really like that reading um, but she has the the servant uh, of God, like the that she this whole time when she has been sinning and driving her husband away to his ultimate death. And like people died because of her ruined her family, just was so selfish and, and very self-seeking um, and ruined, redeemed and loved and used by God. And the the hope of that joy and that vision of beauty and a life redeemed, despite all the mistakes and the willfulness is really powerful evidence of sovereignty. and I, I love it as a as a vision.
1: I think that's our deepest hope, right? The fact that the the idea that even even if we've like, completely screwed things up that god loves us enough that he'll you know that that that, that's that that's he's he's not only going to forgive all that but he's going to redeem all of that and and work it into the whole tapestry of his redeemed creation so that mistakes aren't just overturned and erased but redeemed Sounds like it's the hope of Kristen Lavender's daughter. Sounds like it's it's definitely the hope of uh, of uh, brothers Karamazov, and it's it's certainly also the hope of uh, we Have Faces.
2: Two last yeah. words: I would say reread the book now that you know what it's about. Every line builds on these things. And Lewis is racing towards this conclusion. He knows what's going on. He also falls in love with Joy Davidman as they write it together. Mm. Mm. They wrote it together. And that was when Lewis fell in love with her in the spring of 55. Mm. And so this tension between Orwell and Vardia is the tension between Jack, Joy and Jack. Mm. And she had been writing him love poems since the late 40s. Right, And she stops writing him love poetry at the end of 54 and starts writing this book with him at the beginning of 55. Mostly, I would just remind us that she is psyche too. She is the human soul. And by being psyche too, it means that she gets to be married to the son of the God of love, who is the good God and our good Lord, as she says. And she is unget too. She is love too right? We are being changed by from one degree of glory to the next to be like the son of God. We do not know what he will be like, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him Mm. and his name is love. And so to me, this book is the great hope of the Christian story that she can be transformed even through her ugliness to being psyche to and unget to and beloved of the son of love to it's the thing that my soul most needs. And Lewis gives one more last chance. Uh, Weston doesn't take advantage of it uh, on Paralandra. The dwarfs don't take advantage of it in the last battle. By the way, when the animals come streaming in, they either look at Aslan with fear and hatred, and they go to the left, or they look at him with love and go to the right. And long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might love you. Both books finish the same year published the same year Mm -hmm. so so i would just encourage our listeners and ourselves to be reconciled to the love of god which doesn't stop loving us no matter our ugliness
1: well that's interesting right the 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 parallel to the last battle because that Mm -hmm. is we think of it as god's judgment right but in that in that picture in the last battle that's the animal's judgment of god that Mm -hmm. assigns them one place or another, and it's very similar in this book. Um, that even though the God does come to judge Orwell, and you don't know what his verdict is in the end, um, it ends on a very hopeful note after she's realized that her judgment is ridiculous. She's she's revised her judgment, right, um, basically, which is her book,
2: um, which is uh, which is beautiful. Um, if you want to follow up more on what I'm doing, MythOfLove.net, which is the title of the book that I'm writing on "Till We Have Faces," CSOs and the Myth of Love. And what a pleasure to be with you all and to talk mm-hmm. about this wonderful book about God's love for us.
1: Thank you all so much, Andrew. We'd love to have you back. Uh,
2: blessings yeah. on you. I'd be able, right. I'd love to join you when all I can. Right.
0: Right. Thank you, Andrew. It's been such a gift. Yeah, um, And yeah.
2: um, um, a yeah. uh, gift is mine. Thank you for your your warm companionship and to the, to our listeners for their listening years. This encounter, full of joy, unscheduled on the decent fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. Well what a joy to be invited back uh, with you all. Thank yeah. you for well, trudging through this marvelous book. You could do a whole nother season and do this book again. Oh
1: man, and we uh, so we definitely could. We definitely <laughs> could. This book almost broke us, I think, because, <laughs> because we're just like, okay, we made it through half a chapter this time. Uh, yeah. And it took us like three hours. But uh but yeah, there's just so much here. So Yeah.